0: It's good to be together this morning. And um, I was gone last week. I had the um, opportunity to get to preach at a church in Delaware. Um, It's a church that prays for us and partners with us often. And so it was great to be able to be with them and uh, preach. They do two services. So I didn't know that until Saturday night. So I was like, oh, I got to preach two times. Luckily, I could preach the same thing, um, but that's tiring to preach twice. So anyways, but um, today we'll just preach once. So, uh, But again, glad to be together this morning and continue going through the book of Daniel together and excited for that. I have a question. Have you ever had a really bad night? Now, you can take that however you want. Maybe that means you were like, like up sick all night, or maybe it means you were out, you know, at some point in your life doing something and it just turned into a bad night, whatever. So tonight... Uh, we 're going to talk about a guy who had a really bad night for me one time when I was in high school, I think I was seventeen, maybe sixteen. Um, a really good friend of mine had a jeep, and like it was a really big deal like he really wanted a Jeep and he bought the jeep and it 's the kind of like the top comes off and all this stuff and so one night, um, he and his girlfriend and at the time my, my girlfriend we were going to go to a concert together, and we had some like we were a little bit early or something, and so we left and Um, He said, hey, I'm going to show you guys this really cool spot. And so we drive, and it was the month of March, and from where I lived, at that time we had a lot of rain and some snow, and the snow was melting. And so, similar to here, things started flooding. And so the rivers were really high, and there was water everywhere. So we pull up, and he was going to take us up on this big hill that, like, overlooked something or whatever. Um, And so we were just driving around listening to music. I mean, that's, I guess, kind of what... Teenagers do at some point in their life, right? Um, And so we go and we pull up to this river and it's like rushing by. There's like so much water. And he's like sitting there, we're like sitting there just watching the water and it's like just rushing by. It's a bridge. It's the kind of bridge that like is. Fine if there's not much water, but the water was going over the bridge, right? So we're just sitting there and he like pulls his jeep into the water and it like starts coming up on the tires and I'm like, I don't think I would go into that. And he like backed up and he did it again, then he backed up, he like went a little further. We're just sitting listening to music. All of a sudden he just goes and he just tries to cross this bridge that's covered with water. The water, the current was so strong it pushed us off the bridge. Right into the thing. The jeep starts flooding with water. It's March, so it was cold, really cold. The jeep starts flooding with water. We get out of the water and had to walk probably 30 or 40 meters back through this like waist-high water that's like rushing by. We get back to the shore. He goes in and starts like pulling out his CDs and his like. Do you ever have those like the big like massive notebook full of CDs? Like that's what we had, right? Um, he pulls out his like stereo and his speakers as much. So he's like going back and forth, getting as much stuff out of his jeep as he can. We, um, I think we had a cell phone, we called, or no, we had to walk to someone's house. This is like, okay, this is a long time ago. We walked to someone's house, we called a tow truck, and they came and they got it out. He still drives that Jeep today. Uh, He put, I think he basically rebuilt the entire thing. He had to like replace everything because it was full of river water. for me, that was a bad night. I didn't really like, get in trouble for that, but my parents were like, what were you doing? I was like, I didn't do it. Like, you know, we never went to the concert, we ended up going home. And my only memory of that, this is, my only memory of that was afterwards, like, his mom came to get us and we're sitting in their van And I, like, because I, like, was so, like, stressed and nervous the whole situation, I just had to go to the bathroom, like, so many times. I was, like, I just got to go to the bathroom again. Like, and so that was just a weird memory that I had. Anyways, I go home. We never went to the concert. And it's, like, an infamous night with my friend. So that was a rough night. It was a bad night, especially for my friend. Like, he got in big trouble. Like, his parents were, like, what were you doing driving your Jeep into a river? Um, So, anyways. It was a bad night. So for our story today from the book of Daniel, it looks at a pretty bad night for a guy, a king named Belshazzar, right? He made some very bad decisions, and it did not end well. We'll get into that in a minute. We're going to be in Daniel chapter 5, and we'll see the story of King Belshazzar. So this morning we're going to look at the issues of pride and arrogance. Now, if you've been with us here at Renaissance really for the past couple of months, I feel like multiple times when we were in the book of James and then again here in Daniel, we've actually talked about the issues of pride and arrogance multiple times. Um, And I don't don't think that's wrong, right? Because I think when we look at the Bible over and over and over again, pride is at the root of so many things. And it looks differently, right? Pride can be like someone just being like, I'm the best and like very like out there and wild and out loud. But pride is also very, very quiet. Pride can also be deep in our hearts of I don't want to look foolish. I don't want people to not like me. I need to make sure I put on a good appearance, a good face. I need to make sure I hold it all together. So pride can look like a lot of different things. I don't want to tell you, like, God's been working in my own heart was saying, like, okay, we're continuing to go through Scripture that points these things out. And so I would say, as your pastor, that maybe we all, and I'm speaking of myself, and maybe God continues to bring this up. Let's continue to listen and say, God, would you search our hearts? Show us where there's areas of pride, because this issue keeps coming up as we go through Scripture. Maybe the Lord needs to work in our hearts. And so my challenge today is will you listen with your heart today? Will you allow God to search, almost like shine that flashlight into your heart and reveal there's pride? There's pride over here because pride causes all kinds of other stuff. Pride causes selfishness and bitterness and anger and whatever. It causes, causes all kinds of things in our hearts. So will you allow God to reveal that in your heart this morning? And I've asked and prayed the same thing in my heart as I've prepared this. And so we'll see as we go through, the main point this morning is this, that the posture of your heart towards God will determine God's posture towards you. All right, so we'll go through that and get into that this morning as we continue this series called Stand. Right, we're going through the book of Daniel in the Old Testament. Daniel, if you remember kind of the backstory here, he lived in a place, he lived in Babylon, and Babylon was not his home. He was from Jerusalem. He was Jewish and he was taken there as a young, at a young age. He was not familiar with this place. He was taken from his home and dropped into the middle of a society and a culture that did not follow and worship God. Did not follow and worship the one true God. They worshiped false gods. They lived for pleasure and they lived for themselves. Like it sounds a lot like today, right? The world around us, whether in Montreal or beyond, the world around us lives for pleasure, worships all kinds of things that aren't God and lives for themselves. Too often we do that as well, right? So in this series, we're wanting to see how and why Daniel was able to stand in his faith and stay faithful to God, even though he got taken. I mean, just imagine being a 13 or 14-year-old boy, being taken from your home and say, like, okay, now go live in, like, Las Vegas or go live in New York City or Montreal. Just you're on your own. Go there. Learn all their ways and their customs. And somehow in the middle of that, Daniel stayed faithful to God. So we want to see why and how, right? If Daniel had moved there, gotten taken there, and he would just, like, forgotten his faith and forgotten what he had learned as a boy and just fully embraced his new culture, it actually make sense. Like, that seems like more like, okay, yeah, that's probably going to happen, right? Um, Or if Daniel had gone and he just, like, completely secluded himself and just started boycotting things, like, no, I can't do that. I boycott that, right? If he started doing that in his new culture, that might make sense, too. And yet what Daniel does is that he honors and follows God in the middle of the culture. He learns their ways, their customs, their language, yet he never turns away from the one true God. And my hope is that we are challenged by this series, that we can, so we have we have a few options, right? We as Christians, as followers of Jesus, we can just kind of become like the culture around us. We can just kind of shift and morph and just do what everybody else does and become like the culture. Or as Christians, we can run from culture, be like It's all bad, everything out there. It's bad, it's awful, it's evil, and we can seclude ourselves and say, no, we got to have our own little things, right? Uh, So we can do that. Or what I hope we can do is that we can faithfully follow Jesus and show the world around us a hope and a joy that is found in Jesus alone, that we can actually live to bring life and blessing to the culture. We don't have to reject it. We don't have to completely accept it. But we become an example of hope in the midst of that. All right? You guys awake? You with me this morning? Okay, good. Here we go. So we're in Daniel chapter 5. If you've got a Bible, you can go there. Um, There's Bibles available in the back. And so looking at Daniel chapter 5, it actually is important to read the last verse of Daniel chapter 4. And here's what it says. It says, now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just. And listen to this. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. So what that verse is talking about, if you were here a couple of weeks ago, it's kind of recounting the way that King Nebuchadnezzar, because of his pride and his arrogance, he was humbled, and he actually responded. He humbled himself before God. What this verse does in the story, the bigger story of Daniel, it sets up chapter 5. So it's almost like this like precursor of saying, those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. And what we're going to see is an example of someone who did not, Humble himself. Between chapters 4 and 5, there's a gap of about 20 years, right? Um, and you'll hear multiple times in this, it calls Belshazzar, um, Belshazzar, it refers to Nebuchadnezzar as his father. It wasn't directly his father. He was like a successor of Nebuchadnezzar. So there were some other guys ruling in between there. Uh, but Belshazzar comes along about 20 years after chapter 4, so there's a gap there, and we come to chapter 5. Daniel, this, this chapter gives us another picture of the impact of pride and idolatry. As King Belshazzar lifts himself up against God, God sees his sin and rebellion and brings judgment on him because he has been unwilling to repent. All right, so the posture of your heart towards God will determine God's posture towards you. So we're going to read part of it. I'm going to like kind of summarize the middle section and read the end section. It'll be on the screen, but we're going to start with Daniel chapter 5, verse 1. Here's what it says. don't know what that is all right King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand Belshazzar when he tasted the wine commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar his father had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought "...that the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and all his lords, his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver and bronze, silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Immediately the fingers of a human hand..." This is weird, stick with it, right? The fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed, and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way, and his knees knocked together. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed, and his color changed, and his lords were perplexed. All right, take a break here for a minute. For Through verses 10 and 20, let me summarize these for sake of time. So at that point, the queen comes in, and she says, Hey, take a breath, king. Calm down. There is a man who can do this. She says, Remember Daniel. Remember when Nebuchadnezzar was around 20 years ago, this guy Daniel came and interpreted dreams. He can do it. You need to go find him and bring him in. And so the king they bring the king, they bring Daniel in. the king says, "Hey, I've heard of you." He says, the spirit of God the spirit of the gods is in you." He says, "You have wisdom and understanding he says, "My, my guys, my wise guys, could not interpret what this meant. And he says, "Can you do it?" He says, "If you can, I'll give you a purple robe and a gold chain." Um, that's, I don't know if that was the style back then, that would look weird now, right? He says, I'll give you a purple robe, a gold chain, and he says, you'll be third in command of all the kingdom. So Daniel comes in, he says, listen, king, he says, keep your gifts, I don't want your stuff, but yes, I will interpret this writing for you. So Daniel starts by talking about King Nebuchadnezzar and his greatness, his power. He says, remember the king? He said, he was so great, People knew who he was. People all over the world recognized his greatness and his power. And he says, but, you look in verse 20, it says, his heart was lifted up and he became prideful and Daniel kind of tells the story and recounts how when Nebuchadnezzar became arrogant and prideful and said, I've built my own kingdom, that God drove him out of his kingdom. And for a time, Nebuchadnezzar like, lived like, like an animal. Like, he like, lost his mind and like, his hair grew long and he was like, eating grass. If you remember from chapter 4 of Daniel, it's a weird story, right? There's, there's strange things here. But ultimately, it all led to the fact that King Nebuchadnezzar was taken from his high position and he was humbled about as low as you can go because of his pride. And then God restored him, and at the end of that, King Nebuchadnezzar worshipped God and recognized, okay, God is the one true God. And so Daniel's recounting this story, and it says he was driven from his kingdom until, and so we're going to start in verse 21, um, where it says until. Verse 21 says this. Um, He was driven from mankind, and it says um, he was fed grass. Where is Okay, until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. But you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. And the vessels of his house have been brought in before you. And you and your lords, your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know. But the God in whose hand is your breath and in whose, all your, whose are all your ways you have not honored. Then, from his presence, the hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed. Mene, Mene, Tekel, and Parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck. I guess he had no choice there. The king's like, no, take this, right? Um, And a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. All right a lot going on there. <clears throat> Let's track through this and see uh, what's happening here. So four things I want us to point out as we go through the text, and then we'll look at how we apply this in our own lives. So the four things are a prideful king, a sobering message, a faithful man, and a sovereign God. All right, a prideful king. So in the beginning of the story, the king is basically having a crazy party. Like wine, women, a DJ, strobe lights, like the whole thing. I don't know if that truly was, right? But th- this is like a party, and it was, you know, I, I don't know if any of you have ever been, like, volunteered in, like, at Red Frogs, you ever done that? That's just kind of what I picture, this thing. It's just like this crazy party, alcohol-fueled, all kinds of stuff happening, right? This is the party that's going on. <clears throat> so in the middle of that, he says, hey, bring me the vessels from the temple in Jerusalem that King Nebuchadnezzar had taken when he conquered Jerusalem. So if you read chapter 1, again, of Daniel, we hear King Nebuchadnezzar went to Jerusalem. He basically conquered the city. He conquered everything. He went into the temple and he stole all these vessels that had been set apart for use in God's temple. They'd been set apart for worship of God. And so you may think like, okay, what's the big deal? Like what's the big deal with some random cups? But these items, these cups and bowls and utensils, they had been set aside by God as items used in the worship of God. And so this was not just some case of like using stolen goods. What it was for Belshazzar was it was an outright rebellion and mockery of God. It's as if he was saying like, I'm so powerful, I'm so wonderful, my gods are so wonderful that I'm just going to like spit in the face of this Jewish God and I'm going to take these items that were meant for worship of God and I'm just going to drink and party out of them because I can do that, right? That was his attitude. And so he's giving us a display of idolatry, of pride, of arrogance. In essence, his actions are saying, I will do what I want, and no man and no God can tell me otherwise. This is the posture of his heart. The king has lifted himself up and not humbled himself up. And they were worshiping, it says, they were worshiping the gods of gold and silver and bronze and all these things directly in the face of God by drinking from the vessels from the temple in Jerusalem. It was meant to be a mockery of God. And so the main issue here was the open arrogance towards God, worshiping false gods while purposely drinking out of these cups, right? Belshazzar knew what he was doing, right? He didn't just need new cups, right? They could have had red Solo cups for all he cared, right? They didn't just need cups. He was purposely saying, we're going to, like, mock this God because we can. So the posture of his heart was pride pride and arrogance towards God, and God opposes the proud, right? So that's point number one, that there is a prideful king in this story, and it's pretty easy to see as we've read through it. He's saying, I'll do whatever I want. Nobody can tell me any differently. But secondly, we have a sobering message. So you come to verse 5. What we have here is like Belshazzar sets a record for going from just drunk to sober like the quickest, right? He all of a sudden is just like sober, He's serious, right? It says, like, the the hand appears. This hand, like, appears. I don't know. Like, you can use your imagination. All it says was immediately the fingers of a human hand appeared. I don't know if it was, like, massive or if it was, like, my size hand, but something came and started writing on the wall. I don't know if it was, like, an entire arm or just, I don't know. You can use your imagination. But God, essentially, this is God sending this message to Belshazzar. So this hand appears and writes something on the wall, and, like, the party stops, and all you hear in the room is like the hum of the speakers and the tension <laughs> that was a joke and the tension in the room maybe like a balloon pops and everybody's just like standing there quiet right but all, i mean everything just freezes the party is over and as expected the king is terrified he goes pale his knees knock together i'm guessing he may have like wet his pants i don't know he is terrified he he's just frozen in fear because if if you were there i'm sure you could imagine that right and so he calls for his wise men. This is a lot like what Nebuchadnezzar did when he had these dreams. Hey, I bring these guys, they need to interpret this. He calls for all these guys, and they were unable to help. And they, they were only making this only made Belshazzar more terrified. Because think about this. The systems that he was trusting in were being exposed as useless. All these guys, these wise men, these interpreters, these magicians, all these like like sorcerer type guys. Like he was saying, these are the guys that like are, as we worship false gods, as we do all these things, these are the guys that are important and none of them could understand. And so all this system that he was trusting in was being exposed as useless. And so what was the message? Really it starts like, we'll get to the actual handwriting in a minute, but it starts kind of with Daniel coming and saying this. He says, in verse 23, he says, you have lifted yourself up against God. You have mocked God. You have dishonored him. And we see that in verse 23. You've praised the gods of silver and bronze. You've done all these things. You've lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven. And then we see, so that's the first part of the message, right? Right? That should be sobering to Belshazzar because all of a sudden he's face to face with, like, the God of the universe against me right now because of what I have done, because of my pride and my arrogance, right? Then we get to the message itself in verses 25 through 28. Essentially, so this, uh, the, the language there says, "mine, mine, tekel, parson, or is it, yeah, parson, and later it says parson. I looked, I was like, why does one say parson, one say Perez?" If you look at, at your verse, it's because it was like singular and plural, and it just used the, the one, the singular one is plural, all right? Uh, but basically what it means is this. It means numbered, numbered, Weighed wanting, right? He says the, God, the, the message is God has numbered your days, the days of your kingdom, and brought it to an end. You have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. So, And he says mene two times. So he says numbered, numbered, weighed, wanting. Kind of cryptic, kind of weird, right? What's happening in this message here? But the message was this, that Belshazzar's kingdom was going to be taken from him that he had been evaluated by God and found wanting, found lacking. It was a message of judgment, of God saying, your days are over. You've lifted yourself up against me. You are no longer going to be king. Your kingdom is taken from you. It was a message of judgment. And don't miss the seriousness here. Okay? God, the creator God, the God of the universe, is coming face-to-face with Belshazzar. In the middle of his idol worship, worshiping false gods, Belshazzar comes and encounters the living God. This was a sobering message. The party was over. And the story tells us that that very night, King Belshazzar was killed and the kingdom of Babylon was overtaken. This is a sobering message that came to a prideful king. Third point here, a faithful man. So let's think about Daniel in the middle of all this, right? Because Daniel essentially had been forgotten, Remember, there's a 20-year gap here. All this stuff's happening. He calls, like, if they had remembered who Daniel was, he probably should have been the first person that King Belshazzar called. But he didn't even think about him. The queen was like, hey, remember this guy, right? He had kind of been forgotten. And This is the man who had interpreted dreams, and 20 years before had been raised to a position of honor in the kingdom. Think about Daniel. I don't know what he's doing in those 20 years. The scripture doesn't tell us. But what it seems is that for nearly nearly 20 years, Daniel has faithfully followed God, faithfully fulfilled what God had him to do. And he was forgotten, but we see in our story that he's called into action again. It's like he's called up off the bench, like, Daniel, we need you again, right? But he was there the whole time in the midst of all this kind of changeover in the kingdom. This couple other kings came and went and all this stuff, and now they get to Belshazzar. But Daniel is remembered, and the queen says, remember Daniel. When we think about the whole book of Daniel, at every point, Daniel, in all that he does, Daniel points to the greatness and glory of God. He's faithful to God. He's faithful to be a light in a dark place. So at the end of this story today, Daniel is once again honored and raised up. Even though he's not Babylonian, he's, he's one of the exiles from Jerusalem, but because of his faithfulness, Daniel is put in a position of honor, and I think this was in the first week, D- uh, Dylan talked about this, Jeremiah chapter 29, if you're familiar with scripture, Jeremiah 29 11 is a very famous verse, it says, I know that, God, the scripture says, I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future, now what happens is, we think, that sounds great, God wants to prosper me, not harm me, that sounds wonderful, and like, you know, where I come from, like you, that's what you write, that's what people are give you a card on like your graduation, and it says, I know the plans I have you prosper you. Okay, that's all well and good, but when you read the whole passage, what it was was God speaking to the Jewish people saying, Hey, you're gonna be exiled, you're gonna be taken out of your home, and while you're there, make yourself at home. He basically says, like, bless that place, plant gardens. Live in homes, have families, live your lives, honor God in the midst of it. And so Daniel, in a sense here, again, he's fulfilling Jeremiah 29, 11. He's moving in, making a home, living for the good of his new city. Daniel's fulfilling what God had called. Because when we look at Daniel, the posture of his heart was humility and faithfulness to God. So just remember Daniel in the middle of this. He was faithful in all that God had called him to do. And our fourth point here is this. We see a sovereign God. In the back of the story, back, in the background, sorry, I can't read my notes. In the background of this story, behind the party and the king and all these things, in the background of this story, we see God arranging all things. We see God, he brings down one king, he brings another to power, he holds all power in his hands. God is the one turning the wheels of history. He is a sovereign God. He is over all things. And Daniel continually points to the greatness of God. Look at verse 23 again at the end of the verse, and Daniel's talking to the king, and he says, but the God in whose hand is your breath, and whose are all your ways you have not honored." Think about that. This is the sovereign God. He says, he reminds the king, he says, you are setting yourself up against the very God who holds your breath in his hands. So we see a sovereign God behind the scenes in this story, Fulfilling his plan. If you're taking notes, you can write this down. I'm not going to go there today, but Isaiah chapter 47 gives a prophecy of Babylon being destroyed. And Most of what I read about this is that that chapter points to this chapter right here, where Babylon is taken down in a moment, in an instant. And so in Isaiah 47, it's prophesied that Babylon will be destroyed. And that's what's happening here. And so we think about why God orchestrating all things. He's over time and history God is fulfilling his plan he is a sovereign God he is above it all it's all for his glory it's no different for us today God is king of all kings and we think about the world and political systems and who comes to power and who's out of power and all these things behind the scenes God knows what he's doing and God is sovereignly managing and allowing all things all right We've seen those four points in our story. So how do we apply all of this? Like, how does this, what does this mean for us? There's three questions I want to ask this morning that hopefully help us process and challenge ourselves with, okay, let me think about these questions. First one is this. Will you be faithful when you feel forgotten? And our theme for this series is called Stand, and this point right here is really where this theme comes in, to stand firm. Will you be faithful when you feel forgotten? Think about Daniel. Daniel was faithful. Even when he was forgotten, he wasn't prominent in the kingdom. The king was just doing his own thing. He was faithful. He was steady through the multiple rises and falls of kings. And the posture of Daniel's heart year after year was towards God. So think about your own life. Will you be faithful in the stuff that nobody notices? Will you be faithful when you feel forgotten? I think here's how it plays out. Will you love and serve people even if you're not noticed? Will you do what's right when no one's watching? Right? That's a classic, like, definition of integrity. Um, Or will you do what's right even when nobody cares what you do? (laughs) Right? Like, we can be around a lot of people like, I don't care what you do. Will we choose to do what's right? Will we be faithful in the small things when maybe nobody knows about it? Because a life of impact and a life that honors God doesn't happen in one moment, doesn't happen because of one Sunday, doesn't happen because of one thing in our lives. It happens over a lifetime of moments. Day in and day out, handing our life to God and saying, God, here's my life. Let me follow you faithfully. It happens through, as we, as we faithfully spend time reading the Bible and in prayer and in knowing God in those small ways, when we are faithful in holiness and purity in our lives. We're faithful in our marriages. We're faithful to disciple other people, to help other people know how to follow Jesus. When we're faithful to love and serve people, again, when it's maybe not glamorous or nobody notices We're faithful to love and serve. So this is how we stay faithful. But but know this: you may feel unnoticed, you may feel forgotten, you may sometimes feel stuck in the ordinary and things that seem mundane. Get stuck in the day to day. I get there sometimes. Like okay, go to bed, get up, feed people again. They go to school. Then everybody has their own version of just like this thing that this cycle, right? And we can get stuck in that. You are never forgotten. Think about Daniel. Daniel wasn't forgotten. Maybe he was forgotten by some people, but he was not forgotten by God because God sees and God knows. And this is how we stand firm. This is how we stand faithful, day in and day out, seeking to honor and follow God, whether anybody sees it or notices it or not. The question, will you be faithful when you feel forgotten? I think Daniel gives us an incredible example of that. Second question. What is the posture of your heart? We've said this multiple times. The posture of your heart towards God will determine God's posture towards you. A few weeks ago, a handful of weeks ago, we looked at in James chapter 4. James chapter 4 verse 8 says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Right? So let's pull that apart a little bit. Those who are prideful, that's their posture towards God. What is God's posture towards them? He opposes them. You're prideful, God's opposing you. What does God do to the humble? Those who are humble, that that's their posture, God gives grace. So we see that the pride and humility is huge. That when we are prideful, when we are arrogant towards God, when we basically are saying, God, I don't really need you, that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. This is reality. This was the reality for King Belshazzar. Because of his pride, God opposed him. But when there is humility, God is drawn to that. James chapter 4 also says, when we draw near to God, the promise is, he says, I will draw near to you. That God responds to humility. God responds when we come to him in need. When we come to him saying, God, I can't, but you can. So what is the posture of your heart? Challenge yourself this morning. Is the posture of your heart like, hey, I'm pretty good. I've got it figured out. I don't really need God I don't really need to surrender or depend on him. And you may not be saying this out loud, but are you going through your days like that? I can take care of myself. I'll do what I need. I know what needs to be done. I can do it. It could be more up front saying, I don't really need God telling me what to do, where to go. But you you can evaluate the posture of your heart towards God. Or is the posture of your heart humility? Saying, God, I'm yours. God, shape me. Mold me to be like Jesus. Use me for your glory. That's a heart that's soft, a heart that's humble, a heart that says, God, I need you. The beauty of that is that Jesus says, for all of you who are weary and heavy laden, come to me. and I will give you rest. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. This is the posture of God towards those who are humble. He says, come to me if you're weak and you're weary, which is exactly where God wants us to be. Say, yeah, God, we need you. So, Belshazzar came face to face with truth, and he remained in his pride and his arrogance. So, how do you respond to truth? What happens when we come face to face with our sin? What is the posture of your heart? Is it pride or is it humility? Because the posture of your heart towards God will determine God's posture towards you. Third question What will you do with the fact that judgment is coming? What will you do with the fact that judgment is coming? Belshazzar faced judgment in that moment. The reality is you and I will face judgment as well. So when we come face-to-face with God, we have two options, I think. We repent, which means we say, yeah, God, I agree with you. You're right. I need you, right? Or we rebel. We repent or rebel. Rebel is, no, leave me alone. I'm going to do my own thing. I don't need you, right? So when we come face-to-face with the truth of who God is, we can repent or rebel. But think about this, when, who likes to be confronted by their, about their sin? Well, we may not really think we like it, right? But think about this, that when we are confronted with our sin, whether by someone else, if someone comes to us, comes to you and says, hey, it seems like you're doing things that are not honoring to God. We can be like, hey, leave me alone, don't tell me what to do, right? So sometimes that's the situation. Sometimes we read scripture and something just jumps out of God saying, The way that you're living or thinking or speaking or acting is not right, and we can say, ooh, I don't like that. But when we're confronted with our sin, I believe it's an act of the mercy of God. And I read this in a book this week. It says, whenever God brings a man or woman to the end of themselves, smashing all of their props and wasting their idols, it's a favorable moment indeed if he or she will just see it. So think about that. Basically, that's saying when our world crumbles and everything we've built our life upon crumbles, it's actually a very good thing indeed. It's a a good, favorable moment if we will recognize it. If we will recognize that judgment, being confronted with our sin is often God saying, I want to strip away all this stuff that you think is so good because I'm better. This is what's happening in those moments. So in that moment, we can repent or we can rebel. So what will you do with the fact that judgment is coming? Because there, is also, there will also come a final judgment for every person. We read about this in Scripture. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. I'm just going to read it. It's not going to be on the screen, but it says this. It says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil every person those of us in this room in our city and in our world every person will stand before God one day before the judgment seat of Christ where the in that judgment seat essentially God will you know if you just if you have this use your imagination imagine this throne this line of people and God saying you want to come into heaven why should I let you into heaven have you done what have you done in your life and how are you going to be judged for what you have done And so we say, what will we do with that judgment? I think we'll either try to justify ourselves before God. We'll say, well, I I was pretty good. I did this. I I was a good person. I learned a lot. I went to church. Um, I prayed some. Um, You know, I I was good. I was better than that guy over there. He was awful. I remember her. She was awful. I was better than them, right? So we'll either try to justify ourselves or we will, with humble gratitude and confidence, say, I, I deserve judgment, but Christ, but Jesus took my place and died for my sin. That's all there really is. We either try to justify ourselves before God, or we say, I can't justify myself, but Jesus has done that for me. We have to wrestle with that. What will we do with the fact that judgment is coming? Now think about that idea of judgment beyond just yourself to the world around us. Because if every person is going to face judgment from God, I would say that there is an urgency in sharing the good news of Jesus with people. There is an urgency to telling people there is hope that's found in Jesus. There is judgment that's coming. It actually, you know, in the church, we may not like to talk about God's judgment, but it actually should stir our hearts to say, God's judgment is coming on anyone who is stuck in their sin, who is separated from God. It should prompt our hearts, and we should pray that God would burden our hearts, that it sends us out to say, there is judgment coming, but there is good news, that Jesus has come to make us right with God. We, as the church, we must go and tell. Think about Daniel in this story. What did Daniel do in the middle of this? He was willing to be bold, right? It's probably not always a smart thing to tell kings bad news, right? A lot of kings would be like, I don't like that. They'll cut your head off, right? Daniel was bold and he was willing to speak truth even if it was risky. We think about ourselves. Will we be willing to speak truth, sometimes hard truths, to the people around us? To be able to go to someone, maybe even someone we love, and say, you know what? The way you're living is not right, but there is a better way way. And we're not the, we're not the like morality police. We're not just walking around just judging people on ourselves. But the fact that there's a judgment coming should mean that we should go with urgency. It matters that people hear and can respond to the good news of Jesus. That Jesus Christ has come to die for the sins of the world, to bring people back to God. And there is an urgency. We must go and tell because judgment is coming. So as we as we close, and, and Wes, you can go ahead and come up. Think back. The writing on the wall pronounced judgment. It basically said, you have been, you've been evaluated, you've been weighed, and you've been found wanting. You don't have what it takes to honor God. You are actually dishonoring God. And I think as we think about that, you and I are more like Belshazzar than we like to think. I read, as I was studying for this, I read this line, that there is a Belshazzar lurking in all of our hearts. What does that mean? It means that every single one of us has in our hearts that that pride, the arrogance, the selfishness, the thing that says, I'm going to do what I want. Nobody can tell me any different. Everyone has a Belshazzar lurking in our hearts. And what that is, that's our sinful nature, our prideful rebellion. And we're born with this sinful nature. The Bible teaches that we are born in sin. We are separated from God. And we are born with a posture of rebellion against God. We are born with a posture that says, I'll do it myself. The reality in that is that we deserve judgment. Right? Because the posture of your heart towards God will determine God's posture towards you. That's been our main point all morning. As I thought about that this week, I, I believe it to be true. I believe it to be scriptural, but I kind of struggle with it because there's one thing that I think is actually wrong about that main point. And here's what it is. It's actually good news, right? The, the thing that's wrong about our main point this morning is that when it comes to God's love towards humanity. Romans chapter 5, verse 8 says this, But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners... Christ died for us. Think about the beauty and the goodness of God right there. Even when our posture was against God, we were enemies of God, we were opposed to God, and God had every right to say, I'm opposed to you. What did God do because of his love for us? While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And So while I believe the way that I talked about the point is true, if we live with pride, God opposes the proud. We live with humility, God gives grace to the humble. But the beauty of the good news of Jesus is that even while we were still sinners, even when we were stuck in our sin, even when we were dead in our sin, is what Ephesians 2 tells us, that God gave his grace and love to us, that Jesus gave his mercy to us, that Christ died for us. This is the grace of God, that even when the posture of our hearts was against him, he loved us. He sent Jesus to die for us. Because of our sin, we deserve judgment. But what did God do? Jesus came and lived a sinless and perfect life. He obeyed God fully and died on the cross. Jesus is the faithful one. Jesus, the posture of the heart of Jesus was humility. Philippians 2 says that even though he was In essence, equal to God, he willingly humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Because of his love for us, that Jesus came to serve and to love you and I who were enemies of God. This is the good news. And so what do we do with that? We have to know that if we, or anyone around us in this world around us, if we stay in our sin in our rebellion against God, God opposes the proud. We are separated from God. We deserve the judgment of God. How do we change the posture of our heart? The posture of our heart changes when we turn to God in faith. We say, Jesus, I believe that you are the one that has lived a sinless, perfect life, that gave his life on the cross, that rose from the dead, Jesus, I put my faith in you because I can't fix myself. I can't clean up my own life. I can't save myself, but Jesus, you can. I put my faith in you. So faith and repentance, that idea of repentance is when we come to the point and say, I give up all these idols, all this life that I thought was so good. I turn away from that and Jesus, I turn to you. I need you. And it's through faith and repentance and who Jesus is that the posture of our heart changes, where God no longer says, I'm opposed to you because of your sin, but God says, come to me. And I'm going to pour out my grace upon you. Not because you're so great. God loves us, right? God created us and loves us. But he says, I'm going to pour out my grace upon you because of what Jesus did, that Jesus paid the price for our sin on the cross. Faith and repentance changes the posture of our hearts. So this morning, we're going to worship. And I think here's some ways that you can think through, how can I respond to what God is speaking? You can ask yourself, what is the posture of my heart towards God? Remember, our pride and our arrogance isn't always out on display. It can be deep, deep down under the surface. It can be those things of saying like, well, I don't want to do that because I'd look silly i don't want to i don't want to go encourage that person because they might think i'm weird it's because we're prideful right because we don't want to whatever So, what is the posture of your heart towards god today maybe today your response is you need to humble yourself before god you need to change the posture of your heart by saying god why am i fighting against you Why am I trying to manage and run everything when, God, really, I just need to come to you as a child. Come to you because I need you. Maybe the the posture of your heart. Maybe today you need to surrender to Jesus. Maybe you need to come to the point where you say, okay, all my life I've been fighting against, laying my life down to follow Jesus. But today you need to put your faith in him and surrender and say, I want to follow Jesus. I want him to be ruler and king in my heart. Maybe you need to embrace that urgency of judgment is coming. We must go and tell. Maybe you need to think about people in your life that you need to say, God, would you begin opening doors for conversations so that I can tell these people around me about the good news of Jesus because judgment is coming. And maybe you need to wrestle. Maybe you need to say, God, help me. Help me go. Help me speak the good news of Jesus to the people around me. We're going to sing however you need to respond between you and God. And if if you'd like to pray with someone, we'd love to pray with you as well. So let's pray. God, we thank you for this time in your word. We thank you for your goodness. God, I pray that you'd help us to have a heart posture, Lord, that's humble, willing to lay ourselves down and say, Jesus, we need you. How would you speak to our hearts? Help us to know what you're wanting to say this morning and that we would respond. We would respond in humility. God, we praise you for the work of the cross. Jesus, you've given your life for us so that we no longer have to be enemies of God, but we can be brought into the family of God, become children of God, loved by God because of jesus I pray this in your name amen thank you for listening to the sermon from renaissance church if you have any questions about the sermon or would like to know more please feel free to contact us by email at renaissance.mtl@gmail.com gmail.com or reach out to us on social media it's our passion to love jesus love each other and love our world